Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I recently spoke with a friend and industry peer, the famous Greg Van de Gast, and we spoke into his very strong opinions on his beliefs to frameworks and why he doesn't believe in them. We covered a variety of topics, including hiring and how we need to get past the stigma of needing to hire people with 10 years of experience, but to hire people who are driven and have the right attitude. If you'd like to know more about how Mr. Vandergast's fierce security opinions can help your organization, then please keep on listening. Okay, so Greg, you and I, we do chat online a fair bit. I think it's because you call a spade a spade and as do I. I like your opinions. I think that you're honest. I think you're truthful and I do believe that you speak a lot of sense. So today I wanted to dive into that a little bit more because I believe you bring a very unique perspective that I don't know if people necessarily quite understand. So I'd love to be able to drive that forward on this interview today because I know that I really believe in a lot of things that you say and I am keen to to have a chat and let's see where this goes but before we do that we have to do a quick intro yes you've been on here before but let's just do a quick recap on how you got into security and got to what you're doing now please well it's good to be back thank you so much um I think I actually gave this some thought not long ago on a a different thing and I think my the turning point to get me into information security was I must have been 15 or 16. It was actually the movie Hackers, as cheesy as that is. Oh, I am. That was, uh, yeah, that kind of prompted me to, it was, I just got a computer. I just got internet access. So I like didn't Google it. I Yahooed it because Google didn't exist yet. That's how old I am. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I learned about what's hacking. What's this Linux thing? Never heard of that. There's stuff other than Windows out there. Uh, downloaded the uh, Linux, started playing around with that, BSD. Um, yeah, about it wasn't too long until the feds came to the door and threw me in the back of a van and uh, offered me some unusual employment. And that was kind of my start uh, in the industry. And then I went to work for uh, you know a number of consultancies, uh, which is like lead security architect for CGI, um, a lot of contract work uh, for a while. And actually, at some point, I, I really quite got fed up with it. So I kind of went away from it, uh, then came back in more of a management role. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when things really opened up to me because I was always kind of in the trenches, stuck in the trenches. And when I got to a management role, that's when like, you know what, this is an absolute mess. What the hell are we doing? This just doesn't make sense. It's not effective. And I've been kind of asking why and trying to figure out what's the best way of doing this. And it, it really, really conflicts with the status quo. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's that different flavor that, that you're seeing. Um, and now I'm uh, the head of InfoSec at the University of Salford, doing everything from scratch. Uh, no team, no organization, no framework, no nothing. Um, and I'm getting to actually really deploy that approach with very little resistance. Uh, it's mm-hmm. more, you know, people don't understand this different approach. CIO has never heard of this approach. No one's ever heard of this approach. So you got to sell it, obviously, which adds some difficulty. But for the rest, the results have just been so amazing and so much better than, than I, even I could have expected. And uh, so I, I really enjoy debunking a lot of the myths that are out there. Well, I do mind a, a good debunk of the myths. So I know you do that quite a lot. But why do you think the whole status quo? I mean, look, 
I'm not a big fan of that either. And I think maybe it's because people haven't really evolved with the industry, with the threats that are actually out there. And maybe they just think whatever we did 10 years ago is still going to work, but it's not even that it's probably more the mindset of how are we evolving our thinking as an industry. And I kind of feel that people who are quite heavy hitters like yourself that are out there that are actually trying to give a unique perspective kind of get cut down a lot. And I'm not really sure why, because I feel that if you are listening to multiple people's opinions and perspectives, you don't have to take on everything they say, but it gives you a unique way of thinking. Why do you think people are actually like that? The first part of your statement, I think you touched on exactly what I was going to say, but backwards, uh, which is to say it's, it's not about evolving you know, the last 10 or 20 years as I've been doing it. It's actually, we never fixed the problems of 20 years ago in the first place, and we're still ignoring them. And we're trying to deal with all the symptoms arising from that, completely ignoring the original problem. And this is why my motto is half the staff, half the salaries, half the resource, half the budget, half the tooling, twice the results. And it's, that's an easy bar to meet if you, if you use this approach where you actually are proactive and solve the underlying issues. Because uh, security, you know, a good level of security assurance is quite simple. The hard part is that kind of engagement piece of doing it holistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're absolutely not doing that. And to your point, there's so much negativity in this industry. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of indoctrination. There's a lot of like anyone that doesn't follow the status quo. So I said this not long ago, like we've become a profession of people that know everything. We've got standards and best practices, and this is how you do A and B and C. Uh, we know everything, but we never actually think. We never ask ourselves, well, why is this? And you touched on something which I believe is absolutely key in personal and professional growth is take Take in every opinion, take in every idea. Don't let your ego stand in the way. Because um, you know, even if you say, if you, even if you're dealing with someone who's, you know, factually completely wrong and provably wrong, you're still learning something from that experience. You still realize there are people like that. I'm going to come up with the situation in the future. How can I, you know, defeat? How can I deal with with these situations as they arise? Like everything should be an input for thought and should lead to your growth. Uh, where we have a lot of people like, no, 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 I've been doing this 10 years. I know exactly how it is. You don't get to tell me how to do it. And unfortunately, that, that mentality is, is kind of prevalent. It really is. And that's the conversation I'm having with a lot of people at the moment uh, on the podcast, but even in meetings and in the industry. There's so much negativity and there's, I don't know, maybe people feel intimidated that the new the new guy thinking differently will just wipe them out if they're a, if they're a consulting firm and they're sort of redundant and become obsolete in the market. I, I don't know. I mean, people keep asking me this and there's I have – I don't have all of the answers, but I do feel that people feel threatened by other people, especially new people coming up through the ranks that they kind of feel that their opinions don't really matter anymore because they've been around the chaps for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And no one's really caring as much nowadays about what they have to say. See, I think as, as a more senior person, to me, the natural progression is, I mean, you have some roles where you know, if, if you've been actively doing stuff, uh, you know, a specific technical domain, you will over the years get incredibly good at that, especially if you're doing something like some niche research, you know, like, like kind of stuff like Chris Roberts does, and like hacking airplanes and that kind of stuff. That yeah. takes a certain mindset and that, that's accumulated over years and years and years. But most of the roles out there are commodity jobs. You know, they're nine to five. You're an analyst, you do this. You're an architect, you do that. Sure, you're going to keep up with, you know, the, the times and technologies, but your actual role doesn't change in scope that much. Whereas... I'm more of a generalist and my evolution is, is actually away from what I used to do and more into kind of a, a leadership role. Like I don't play with the tech. I mean, I like to play with the tech every now and then, but 
really my job is, is a, I work as a, as a force multiplier. Basically I structure, I get the obstacles out of the way. I define approaches. I mentor the people to better do their job, to get them to understand the big picture, to, to grow and, and, and that kind of stuff. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the guy that enables, you know, a team of two or three people to do the work of in other places, literally like 10 or 15. Mm, yeah. You've, you've spoken about that before. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, that's how I see that, that growth. And I really want to, everything I've learned over the course of 10 years, I want to impart that on them ASAP. And I generally think like by, you know, by the time they're 25, if I hire, they'll be making more money than I was making when I was 35. And that doesn't bother me. I, you know, it's like I've helped bring someone along that far and that's, that's quite rewarding. You know, it's not, I do it, you know, it's not just about money. I used to contract and make obscene amounts of money, but uh, it's, it's just more personally fulfilling. And I think that that personal, uh, that reward side to it is, is a much better motivator than just a cold, hard tech and just doing a job and a big salary. Um, mm. and that's kind of where I see my role and just that mm-hmm. wanting to impart and help everyone in the team and also everyone in the organization. Well, it helps my team do really, really great things that everybody says, no, someone with that little experience can't possibly do uh, to the point of calling me irresponsible and reckless for letting them do it. Uh, but it also means I get really, really good engagement with the business. Um, and that gives us a lot of traction. So their capabilities are, are really, really high and they actually have the traction to do the stuff. And I think that's part of the, that's the secret sauce of why we achieve as much as we do with as few resources as we do. Okay. So, all right, all right, let's, okay, let's dive straight into setting up a program and corresponding frameworks. So what's your advice on how you would go about setting these up? So let's frame it. It's an organization who has nothing implemented and are looking to do this from scratch. I think that's actually a really good position, especially if you're going to take a different approach like me because you have a blank canvas. I think the single biggest mistake people do is, oh, we need to set up an information security framework. Let me look at NIST. Let me look at ISO 27001. You have your business right in front of your face. And instead of engaging it and understanding how it works and looking through the business processes and talking to the people, or what systems do you use? What, what do you actually do? Where, what data does that touch? How is it processed? No, let me go over here to this generic document that was written someone in a different country who has never seen my business and met my people and knows absolutely nothing about it. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Go through your own business, the one you have right in front of your nose, which means you actually talk to people, you build relationships, you get collaboration, and you're able to tailor security that works for you uh, and then structure that as part of your own framework. I mean, it's not difficult. I literally 10 years ago, they're like, oh, I need to structure a way to organize all these security activities and you know, created a chart of how to structure this. And I created an executive level where I have a, a charter where I define that we're going to create this whole program. Uh, you agree that you're going to give us this authority, this responsibility. We'll be able to do this, this, this. We'll be involved in projects and you get that signed off at the highest level. Uh, to that, I've added like a strategy document to better help them understand how we're going to achieve that. Uh, you know, there's another layer for, for legal documents and HR and that kind of stuff. And then a framework overview and schedule and a compliance mapping. And then 30 different areas from you know, risk management to email to network security of how they're not policies, they're not processes, but each document covers an area and everything we're going to do in that area. And sometimes there's some overlap. Like MF, you know, email will cover MFA as will you know, my access control domain that will cover MFA as well. And I just structure all these activities and I just create a document that covers each of these areas. And that's my framework. It's simply a way of organizing all the different kind of pillars or whatever areas of work. It's not rocket science. It's, it's really not that difficult. Uh, people seem to make it out 
you know, when you say like, yeah, I just create my own framework. They're like, no, that's impossible. And no one can do that. Like, well, NIST did it. ISO did it. I mean, it's not a big deal. And you can do it specific for your own business, specific for your own business processes and your people and their capability and your tooling. So you, you can tailor it and actually make something that you can follow. Um, and it works really, really well. Because when the auditor comes up, we just give them uh, the stack of documentation of this is everything we do. Whereas every other business says, oh, we're ISO certified, this or that. But they're running around like headless chickens a month before the auditor comes every year. And that's, if that's not a sign that you're not actually implemented what your documents say, then I don't know what is. But someone at some point, like you said, NIST, ISO, someone at some point has created it and now it's the standard, it's a framework, it's implemented across the globe. It's yeah. just that I think people maybe look at it as something to fall back on, like, oh, well, I use NIST. Well, that's the thing. It was invented as a way of checking that you were doing security. And now we're using it as the foundation. No, no, it's supposed to, it's like a spot check. You know, it's a high level kind of nebulously worded abstract. Are you doing this kind of thing, this kind of thing, this kind of thing. Now we're using that as the foundation. And it, I just don't think that it should be. Why? Um, why is it why people started using that? Is this pure laziness or this no clue or? It's, it's like, you know, it's like preparing for an exam by getting a copy of the exam and knowing which answers you need to put on the exam. And it just leads to this tick box approach where I'm going to just do the things that they're going to look at as opposed to actually sculpting something around my business. Now I build it around the business itself. And I've worked in half a dozen ISO 27001 certifications where I maintain the certification, two of which I actually achieved the initial certification. I have never seen the inside of the 27001 document. I don't know what the hell's in there. I've just tailored the security to the business. The auditor from BSI or ISO comes in. And yeah, you guys are doing absolutely everything. You know, give or take this. Would you mind changing the label on that and this or that? Like two, two weeks of prep to get ISO 27001 certified. And people everywhere else, like a multi-year project. It's because you weren't doing security to begin with. And then they do this multi-year project just to tick the ISO boxes, but you don't actually have functional security. You're spending a fortune and you have this constant mismatch between your ISNS, which I think is a stupid name, and your, your actual reality. And you're always struggling with that. And that's why a month before the, the audit, you're suddenly doctoring up your risk registers and updating dates on, on documents and stuff. They're just completely out of whack. I, I create, you know, again, a framework custom framework built to the business. And then I have one, one part of that framework is compliance mapping. And here's PCI, here's ISO, here's Cyber Essentials Plus, which is a UK thing we have. And these are all the controls. And this is what they map to in our framework that's, around, that's based around our business. And they can simply look up at that reference, that mapping document, and every control that they're looking for, they can find it, how we do it in our framework. And it's seamless. So do you feel that if people are just doing this as a tick in the box, for example, that's kind of doing a disservice then. Your whole job is to service and secure the business. So if you're not doing that, then what are you doing? Yeah, but I think that's become a, a big part of the industry. One of the, the re, one of the things my current boss likes so much, and it was the thing we talked about in our first interview, interview was like every professional services or advisory or consulting firm I've gone to, they've all, like when I said we want to get you know, Cyber Essentials Plus certified, maybe down the line get ISO certified, we want like a mature information security program. All of them, they would, all they would talk about was how they could, you know, kind of 
shape things and de-scope things to get them their certification. And he's like, I don't want you to like doctor things and de-scope things. I want you to actually secure the stuff end to end because I'm tired of seeing, because I'm tired of seeing incidents. Yeah. But you know how ISO is like, yeah, you can, you can ISO certify the bejesus out of the corner of the desk and then say, Oh, we have, you know, we have an ISO 27001 cert, but it only applies to the corner of this desk, not to the company as a whole. Whereas like, no, 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 we're going, we're going in full ball. We're going to full business discovery. We're going to talk about every single member of staff over a three year period, find out what every single person does and build security around all of it. And it's not even going to be expensive because we're going to do the fundamentals. So in your opinion, do you believe companies are accurately following frameworks? Because from what you said, it sounds like maybe they've, they're scrambling to get a last minute before the audit dude turns up and they're just purely saying to their executives like, yeah, I've done it, but they're being a bit cowboy-esque when it comes to rule following. I, I think a lot of them are, are, they just genuinely don't actually know. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of them, the, the maturity of what they have actually implemented. Uh, Who doesn't know, sorry, just the executives or the security people? Even the security people. How can uh, I not know though? It's, it's, I think it's a lack of engagement issue. They'll implement a bunch of things. It's, it's usually based a little bit, some of it's common sense stuff. Some of it's a bit tick box, but it's rarely really holistic from end to end. Uh, and that's a lack of engagement because they simply don't know all the stakeholders in the business. They don't know all the business processes. They're not aware of all the systems. They don't know all the data flows. They're not, they don't have that conversation with people to actually find out what's going on. There was, there was a, there was a talk a couple of weeks ago and after me was Paul C. Dwyer. And he mm-hmm. was talking about, you know, he met people, you know, heads of, heads of InfoSec that they've been there. Uh, they worked like at a bank and yeah, they'd been there 10 years. They were like, do you know how you actually make money? And they're like, well, we're a bank. Like, okay. But how do you actually make money? And the InfoSec team had no idea how the actual business worked. So how can you align your security to what's important if you don't even know how the business works? Well, that's just naivety and pure laziness. Yeah, but it's it's kind of become that the, the stereotype, right? It's like security is this department off to the side and they hide behind their computers. Or we try to put in like really big expensive, you know, socks and then detection response capabilities and all these other things. But no one's actually going out and talking to the business and making sure the basics are being done holistically. And those are usually like free or very cheap. Uh, you know, we have to detect these incidents of, or just you know, ransomware attack or this or that. If you just like patched across the board. Uh, and that's what I mean when security, you know, oh, we tick the box, uh, we do patching. Uh, but then like last year I had four assessments uh, and there were two to three week assessments. Um, they just wanted me to come in and have a second look at things. And four of them, four out of four on the trot, I got turned away on the second or third day because the amount of stuff that I had found that wasn't being done, that they thought was being done, was overwhelming. And What do you mean they thought though? Like, shouldn't they be checking this and auditing and monitoring that people are doing things? It's not just assuming? Part of the problem is I think they create, they only deal with what they know and things are siloed. So you got a lot of issues in silos. So it's like, oh yeah, we're monitoring all these systems to make sure that they're patched. And they're like, what about the systems you're not monitoring? What do you mean? These, these are all the systems in our CMDB. Like, yeah, what about the systems that aren't in your CMDB? Like, what do you mean? Everything's in the CMDB. It's like, mm, no, <laughs> I can guarantee you, you've got unknown systems somewhere. Uh, and, and sure enough, you do. And uh, we've, got, we've got a supermarket chain here called Tesco. And one of the things I heard a month or two ago was that they can tell you exactly how many 150 mil bottles of Heinz tomato ketchup they have in every single store across the country, which shelf it's on in real time, but they can't tell you how many devices they have connected to the network. 
because it's everything is done from a functionality standpoint, not from a mm. everything the sun touches standpoint, which is where security is important because you may have a system in the corner that does absolutely nothing from a functional standpoint. It's meaningless to you, so it never gets considered by the CMDB. Uh, but from a security standpoint, it does become relevant because it's everything else that you want to know about, not just the functional bits. Yeah, so I, I generally believe a lot of organizations out there think they're doing a good job, but they're not actually doing as good a job as they think they are. And it's, it's not for lack of effort. Um, some of them are really, really trying. Some of them are absolutely not and hiding behind the fact that security is invisible. But uh, a lot of them, yeah, they, they genuinely are putting a lot of time, effort, and money into things. But that lack of engagement means they don't have a holistic view of it. That's part of it. And the other part of it is we've, I was reading, like there was an article like a month or two ago about how to deal with the, the resource shortage that CISOs face. And in there, it actually said, you know, if, if CISOs could do things over, they would spend less money on uh, preemptive security, I forget what they called it, and more on detection and response. And I'm like, are you high? That's why you have so many things that you need to detect and respond. I think I saw that post. I think you actually said, are you high? Yeah. <laughs> this. I think it went like a pretty viral post too, from memory. I don't remember, but I think that's just absurd, but that's becoming the status quo. And there's this mentality, oh, it's impossible to fix everything. It's impossible to keep them out. It's like, you've never tried. You've never actually, we've never successfully done, you know, basic hardening or provisioning or patching on a holistic, truly holistically, because we've never had the level of engagement with people and the business to even be aware of what's out there. Mm-hmm. So if you patch your systems, you're not going to get hit by ransomware and want to cry. I'm simplifying, of course, but you know, if you add Arbok and if you monitor, if you know where your data is and who's got access to it and you limit it to the bare essential and you do some false monitoring, then you know, the, if, even if you do get hit by WannaCry or whatever ransomware, then the, the spread of it is gonna, you know, it's gonna hit three computers instead of 300, uh, that, that kind of thing. Just holistic engagement is, is just a massive, massive game changer. And mm. you this expensive, you know, really blinky band-aids, it just works. So, Greg, I love what your opinion is online. You're honest and you say how you feel. But one thing that I feel keeps coming up in conversation with myself, people that I interview, is how security needs to be engaging with the business because it's something you spoke about just before. I feel it's something that people still miss the mark a lot on. And I'd really love to get your opinion because you're going to you're gonna tell me how it is and I just want the honest truth. Okay. First of all, I think the negativity and the blame game and stuff, just throw it in the bin. That is a huge, huge problem. Uh, you get security people together in a room and they just start bad-mouthing management. They start bad-mouthing users. And I just, I hate seeing that. It's so just not helpful and, and harmful, especially from a, from a strategic standpoint. Be positive, be engaging, be friendly. And I don't, there's a lot of talk about engaging the business, engaging management, engaging the board. Don't even limit that scope there. Engage absolutely everyone. Now you have to understand everyone's a human being. So your chief executive and your end user, they're all human beings. So you can actually treat them all the same. Uh, there's no need to be intimidated by, by the board, but you have to understand each individual's perspective. So first thing is I never ask anything from anyone without having some kind of relationship established. Even if it's something I need urgently and it's the very first person, very first time I need to communicate with this person, like, if at all possible, I will go down, see them in person, uh, you know, try to meet everyone, try to understand everyone, buy people a coffee, just be friendly and, and have build a human relationship with everyone. And that, even at the end users, like that will get you so much more collaboration. Uh, you know, all this resistance that security people are constantly fighting against and this frustration, mm-hmm. that stuff just melts away 
and it's it's really really game changing. So that applies to absolutely everyone, uh, every you know every end user, every every person in the IT department, every stakeholder, every team lead or department head. Just have a positive relationship with them, and you can't always do that. There are some people that will just be more difficult, and sometimes you need to work on yourself because okay, there's something about this person that I'm not getting. And what do I need to do to, to make it work with this particular person? Sometimes it's just not going to work or you're going to have to put so much work into it that it's just not time effective. Uh, but, you know, just keep being friendly regardless of how cold they are to you. Influence the people around them. Eventually they'll get on board themselves. Mm-hmm. And I do that as, you know, I've got like one or two people in the organization that are still kind of cold to me. And I don't do that as, ah, damn it, you know, they're, they're dicks and, why are they being like this? I view that as a as a fun challenge. You know, so I kind of like oh, you know long term. There will come a day where we'll have a, a good relationship with that person, or even have like a pleasant five minute conversation, and I will be fist pumping the hell out of myself in the car because that will be a strategic win. So just look at that. That's actually something I mentioned in the post. Uh, I'm going to take a little tangent here. Something I mentioned in a post not long ago, a few days ago. Security people are getting incredibly frustrated. They all feel like they're hitting a wall, and I think part of that is. Um, you know, I said earlier, you've got a business that's right in front of your face. So build your framework around that. But in terms of what you're trying to accomplish from a security leadership role, this is a three-year project. So you've got to look three years ahead of you. And if something doesn't go your way, just see it as a learning experience. See it as, a, as a, something of, you know, I have an end destination and I don't know what the path to that destination is yet. I can't mm-hmm. see it. So every negative quote unquote thing that happens to every setback, every no, every push aside, that's actually guiding you toward that path. It gives you input. It's, it's valuable information. Stop seeing it as, you know, some frustration, breathing negativity and barriers and blockers and start saying, okay, I just got some input. How can I use that input toward that long-term goal? I'm now richer than I was this morning because I'm aware of this issue. And I now know that the path goes around it. So, if you just use that strategic mentality and that long-term mentality, then you turn these negatives into valuable information and it doesn't bring you down uh, as opposed to, you know, I need this implemented right now, right now, right now, right now. And, and that, that very urgency that you're putting on yourself actually puts other people off. So you're actually less likely to accomplish that. And whenever I have a building block of my framework and something I need to do now-ish, but I'm meeting resistance, the fact that I'm meeting resistance means that there's an underlying issue somewhere else that I need to resolve. But whatever it is I'm trying to do now, park that, deal with the issue. And that can be an organizational thing. It can be a tooling thing. It can be a human relationship. Fix that and then go back to what you needed to do, which will now be able to get done easily. And the next 20 things in your queue, many of them would have also suffered from the same kind of resistance because of that underlying problem they no longer experience that underlying problem. So you may have spent an extra month dealing with that underlying problem, but the 20 month body of work that you had before, now you can do it in 30, 40% less time because you no longer have that problem. So that, that month you spent, you're actually gonna save six months over the next two years because you limited that, that underlying issue instead of just constantly being frustrated and bad mouthing people and saying how no one cares and how everyone's pushing back and blah, blah, blah. In terms of communication to management, I think we're, a lot of people are doing it really wrong. It's very technical. It's very funny. It's very scaremongering. It's very risk-based. And I think it's quite technical. Um, I don't think risk-based is the best way to do it, to be honest. And everyone's obsessing about being quantitative and, 
and metrics and this and that. Like if you just have a good relationship, people will listen to you. If they trust you on a personal level, you won't even have to justify things. They'll just believe you. And I have, you know, when I'm told you know, the board doesn't care. I think that's absolutely absurd. That's an absurd statement. Of course, the board cares. It's their responsibility, but it's also their responsibility to apply due diligence. So if you're going to them and you're just, oh, the sky is falling, cyber this, wanna cry, ransomware, blah, blah, blah. We're like, yeah, we don't know what you're talking about, first of all. And you're saying- The sky saying, is falling. Yeah, well, you know how it is. Like we need- The sky is falling. You know, you're quoting all these vendor stats and you know, every day there's a different stat. You know, there's every day you see a stat that's something, you know, 97% of breaches are caused by this. And then the next day it's like 87% of breaches are caused by like, well, I don't yeah. know how they actually aggregate <laughs> all that anyway. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was, I saw someone the other day, it was like, it was from someone who was actually saying their post. <laughs> and I, I think the guy is quite smart, but he was, he was using this post and it said 42% of all routers use default passwords. I'm like, now, how, how could you, you how possibly you establish that number? Like you you check the configuration file of every single router on the planet, have you? And their yeah. answer was just, well, well, this number, no, this number is true. It's from Visa. Like the fact that it's from Visa doesn't make it true. I mean, you cannot just make no, this. No, but this is what people rely on. Yeah. But or they is, believe. These are scary blanket statements. And most scary. But they're blanket, you know, unprovable, obviously made up numbers. And of course. Boards are not stupid. You start throwing that stuff at them, and they're going to tune out. So instead, if you just calmly explain and be strategic in communication, like every interaction with every single person, not just stakeholders and board members, but every single person, because you never know who's a friend of who, mm -hmm. try to build relationships and be strategic about that. Um, and that can be on, on a very simple level. But one of the very first things that happened when I came here, it was I got here, and within two and a half weeks, there was a follow-up audit. And we had not delivered a lot of the stuff that was expected to be seen on this follow-up audit. So we kind of scrambled a bit, tried to make it look okay. And it was honestly, it was not satisfactory to me, but it ticked the box, which was what was needed for that audit. But I also, it also gave me an opportunity to, I just want you to know, by the way, we're also building this framework in the future. This is how we're going to address this. And this is how we're going to structure this and blah, blah, blah. And when the executive summary went to the board of that audit, a third of the cover, the one page summary was talking about, you know, we've observed that there's a new head of information security. He's putting together a comprehensive program. It shows the holistic change in direction. It'll be a great foundation for future growth, maturity, improvement, blah, blah, blah. So I've been here for three weeks and already the board got wind of, hold on, there's a new security person here because I wasn't even supposed to be head up. I, the, the, original, the original role was just kind of a security manager type type. Position. I'm like, no, no, you guys need like a full on strategic approach. And my boss is like, oh, I love that because everyone else is trying to de-scope stuff and you actually want to strategically grab everything. So all of a sudden the board finds out, oh, we have, we have an actual head of InfoSec and he's already being praised in the audit report. So that was, they got primed to my arrival. And then a month later, we actually presented the findings of the audit and got to explain my strategy a bit. You know, just got five minutes with the entire board, two months into my role. Uh, and most security people don't see that ever. And uh, I got asked like a difficult question of, you know, on a scale from one to 10, where do you think we are? And we just did really well on this audit. So they assumed that we were up there now. And it's like, yeah, we're actually two. And I, oh, and I, I just mm. explained it to it. Like, well, this is why, you know, we've got this cloud stuff, it's consolidated. Uh, so we know all about that, um, but we're not fully leveraging the capabilities it has. We don't, we haven't really built the maturity around it. 
So that's kind of in the middle of the road. And then the, the internal estate, because of the schools and all the self-provisioning and, and all these other stuff, we've got, we're lacking a lot of visibility. We don't know this. We know these kinds of things are happening. Uh, you know, we, need, we need to grow our visibility. We need to grow our capability. We need to grow our maturity. And it's going to be, you know, it's, that's why we set up this program. It's going to be like a three-year approach. And it was just like, okay, well, this guy's working on it. And that's all mm-hmm. they need to you don't need to talk, start talking about tech and what's what and the end point. Of no, tech. they don't care about that. No, exactly. It's just like, okay, we have someone competent who seems to, uh, and we had like the heads of some of the departments reach out to us afterwards. It's like, oh, we, we enjoyed that. That was interesting. Please let us know if there's anything we can do. Um, our chief executive gave her annual address a few weeks after that. And I thought it was, it was quite a good address. So I just, as everyone was leaving the hall, I actually went down to the stage and I just complimented her on the address. And I was like, by the way, you mentioned a few things. I think, you know, the things that we'll get to that, like the hiring and the being proactive and the lowering costs and the doing security molded to the business also means that you actually discover a lot of the business and you can actually identify inefficiencies and opportunities for synergy. Like my security spend is inferior to the cost savings I identify elsewhere. So I actually have a negative spend to before we started the security program. And just to talk about that, she's like, you know what, that's very interesting. I'd like to buy you a coffee. And then we had a coffee. And now I have a recurring uh, bi-monthly meeting with our chief executive over coffee just to shoot the breeze and get a feel for where things are and how things are going. And mm-hmm. what communication can you have in that? And, and everyone seems to think that the board doesn't care. They're isolated. They're, it's like, no, it's, it's all in your approach. Just be real. Like, treat them like human beings. Not and, like a firewall. <laughs> yeah, and, and, uh, yeah, exactly. Because it's all we have this default stance. I think, yeah, that's a great point. This default stance that everyone's a blocker. And they're not. You just have to get them on side. You have to make them understand. But in a way that's relevant to them, not to us. We are there to serve the organization. So we have to relate to what it is they are doing and make it relevant to them. And it's, it's really not that difficult. Because I actually, you know, again, I have interaction directly with senior management. And I actually have people ask me, like, do you not need more money? And I'm like, no, we're actually good for now. We don't need, but don't you need all this stuff? Like, yeah, maybe in a couple of years, but right now we're not at a maturity level where that actually makes sense to us. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's quite interesting because everybody else would be screaming, asking for more money. But no, we're good. I think language is important. And I think one thing that seems, if you take yourself out of, or anyone out of being a security person for a second, just look at it psychologically. If you're trying to get an outcome from someone or you're trying to influence them or you're trying to do something, sort of having a go at them, blaming them, really gets them offside super quickly. Yeah, That's the thing that I don't kind of get. Like, okay, yes, you're a security person, but actually think about it as a human being. If you're trying to sell lemonade on the street to someone, by them, you're not just going to start attacking them. Do you think they're really going to buy it at the end of the day? So I, it's almost like there's no, there's not a lot of common sense actually being delivered because if you're – trying to get someone to understand your point of view and maybe you're convoluted and you can't explain it, which is okay, fine. But the language is so important. So undermining someone starting to get quite aggressive towards them and abrasive doesn't really solve the problem. So to me, it's just, I don't know why people keep doing that because clearly it doesn't work. So if you look at like really bad neighborhoods, they don't solve the problem by putting SWAT teams on every corner. They solve the problem with community policing of having officers knock door to door, introduce themselves ask how can they help, give their kids a football, that kind of stuff. That makes, that gets people talking to police, getting people to recognize, oh, you know what, they're not the Gestapo, they're not just here to put our children in jail. They actually care about the neighborhood. And, and oh, you know, well, we heard about this thing, we're gonna tell you about it. And I, I see that just by having those good relationships, 
I've got hundreds of eyes and ears just reporting stuff to me. We put that into the into the framework, into the, the plan for the next three years of things that I would never have had time to go and find out myself. But because people know that they're not going to get yelled at or their fingers slapped, I said, well, thank you so much for uh, you know, for bringing that to my attention. It's like, well, you're like, not going to shut us down. It's like, well, if you could just do this for now, we'll leave it at that and, and we'll revisit how we can do it without impacting you guys. And they're like, oh, that was, that was such a pleasant interaction. And then, you know, they keep coming to you and instead of this Gestapo approach where, yeah, like you said, you just chase everyone away and no one wants to work with you. And I think this is why so many security people are so frustrated. What I'm curious about is like, how do these people that are doing that, how do they operate in like everyday society? Like, how do they get boyfriends or girlfriends? Like, <laughs> yeah, like how are you enticing someone to like you by sort of arcing up at them? Doesn't really, uh, you're not selling yourself. Yeah. But it's, so I, I, I'm curious I, about I do that. I like, I doubt they do that in the real world, you know? And it's like, we, we have all these stigmas and, but it's, and the same thing, though. it's psychology. Over. Yeah, exactly. But we don't, we don't apply that in the office for some reason. But it's you know? Why? I think it's, I feel like it's human nature a bit, unfortunately. Uh, and you got some people who are just very open to everyone and just take it all in. But a lot of people are you know, driven by ego and they get very easily offended and you know, all kinds of other stuff. And you just have to kind of create an open culture by setting the tone yourself. And then you'd be, every, everyone would rather have a good time than be bitter at each other. It's pointless. It's uh, the example I always give is you know, when you, people are trying to merge into traffic, if you just wave someone through, they're all surprised and they're smiling and they're waving at you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> And then if you you get like half a mile down the road and then you all of a sudden need to merge in in front of them, like, oh, it's you. Hey, yeah, come on in. Come, please, please, by all means. And you've both put a, like, you've not made any progress in terms of, you know, you've not gotten any further ahead, but you're both now smiling and having a good time. It's just easier though. Yeah, exactly. Like how much further are you really going to get by not letting them in? Exactly. That's what I mean. I, I don't know. I don't worry about stuff like that. But yeah, Sydney I, drivers can be pretty aggressive. So, no. <laughs> especially where I live. So, one. Okay. So, let's talk about setting the tone. So, let's talk about what your belief is and, and how companies need to be engaging from the top down in today's world. Now, in my honest opinion, I still believe there is this archaic approach to how leaders are engaging their staff when it comes to security, because if it wasn't, we'd have a better result of people responding in a way and they're clearly they're not, or else we wouldn't have the issues that we're having. So I'm keen to get your insight on that as well. Well, I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure how you, how you mean that question. So I have two possible interpretations. I'll answer both. So the first one is, I think it's in terms of the whole business and the users, I think it is security's responsibility to engage people uh, you engage the end users, you engage uh, management, and if you take this soft, constructive, collaborative approach, people want to work with you. I mean, we had, they started doing a lunch and learn session here every couple of weeks where someone talks about what it is they're doing. And I got volunteered for it. I was like, oh, crap, like no one's going to want to come to security, really. Really? Uh, you know, because security, cause it's literally gotten to the point where you introduce yourself as a security person, and the stigma is from past security people is like one in two people just literally takes a step back. Like you, you're security. <laughs> I, I generally see people like physically recoil when you tell them you're the new head of, of security. Um, so I didn't think anyone would attend, but just because you know, you just build good relationships in the business. I, I got a notification that they had to change the venue due to the number of attendees. I was, and I was like, does that mean we're moving into a broom closet? Cause no one, like, no, no, we need, we need a bigger room. You know, it was the, the biggest, uh, one of these events we had and a number of attendees, people came from, we have several campuses, like people came from other campuses on like 10, 15 miles away 
maybe not 10, 15 miles away, but a good 15, 20 minute drive away just to attend this lunch and learn about information security. And, and most of it was actually about how traditionally information security sucks and we're really sorry about that. We want to do things differently here. Uh, so it was a good opportunity for me to convey that message, but I generally didn't think anyone would show up. Uh, but they did. And people were asking for copies of the slides and, and that kind of stuff. So I think that's, yeah, take every opportunity you can to, to communicate. That should be how, how we do it in terms of, of the business. Now, the other thing, my other interpretation of your question is how security teams themselves are managed. And I see like really, really bloated, just terrible security organizations all the time or between like CISO and the analysts, you've got like five levels of hierarchy and it's very ivory tower and you can't even talk to your boss and, uh, and this plays into, you know, the, the hiring trends where they'll hire, if a junior person is lucky enough to get hired by them, they'll just, well, here's some Excel stuff, you know, populate these the risk registers or whatever. Oh, and that's gosh. the chain work they, they make them do. And it's like, well, you're not engaging your own people. You know, you're making them waste away and then you're complaining you don't have enough resource to do stuff. I think that, that's really, you we have to, as a security leader, you have to communicate to your people. Uh, for anyone in the business, or from help desk to my own people, they can come to my desk any time of day. I got that open communication. They understand that my junior guys, they don't understand what the big picture is per se. I hint at it as much as I can. I drag them into meetings with the CIO. Um, I tell them to shut up, please, because, well, <laughs> one recent starter, 8.30 a.m. on his second day, and I posted about this. I think you saw it. <laughs> yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, okay. I wasn't sure if it was safe to say. So he meets our, our interim CIO. He's like, oh, he sees a new face. I was like, oh, who are you? I was like, oh, my name's Ryan. He's like, oh, and what's your role here, Ryan? He's like, uh, Greg's bitch. So was like, CIO just turned Did out. he laugh? He, he just took a step back. He, was, he, had, he has a pretty good sense of humor. He just turned around to me. Craig's bitch. Hmm. <laughs> we had, yeah, everybody else thought there, apparently there were some complaints, but. You know, really? I think it, I have a sense of humor. I think it's funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Our, our team is quite open like that, but apparently there was someone saw online that was appropriate, whatever. And it's like, yeah, whatever. Our, our working relationship's really, really good. Um, but that, that open communication, you know, I told them, you know, don't, please don't do that anymore. You got lucky because it was the right people, but there's other people you don't want to. But that comes as part of the enthusiasm and that's part of the whole mentoring thing anyway. But yeah, that, that communication within the team to team members, to enable that communication within security teams that everyone's reachable and to end this empire building. Uh, I've seen CISOs who are just completely disconnected and completely unreachable by you know, members of the security team. They only want to talk to the two or three managers that report to them. No one else, uh, you know, yeah. it takes three months to get an appointment. It's like, oh, I'm busy with strategy. It's like, you know what? I'm busy with strategy as well. Your strategy is actually crap. Uh, and you're because you're completely unaware of what's actually going on. Mm. Uh, that's part of the reason some of these CISOs have absolutely crap strategies because they just there's no engagement, there's no communication, there's no kind of open spirit of of let's get this done together and helping the junior people. I think that, that's a part of your security leaders, not just to sit there and strategize. Which, by the way, you cannot do if you don't know what's going on in the trenches. But it's to grow your people, to enable your people, to remove, you know, develop them, but also to remove any obstacles that that they have in their way. And a lot of people don't do that. So I think that that's absolutely critical in terms of communication and, and developing the efficacy of your team. It's not, you know, oh, we need uh, an enterprise product or planning or this. No, it's, it's soft stuff. It's getting that communication. It's tapping into that human potential. It's getting an awareness and visibility of what needs to be done and who does what, that, that kind of stuff. The mushy stuff, it makes a huge difference. 
I think just on the communication side of it, like everyone's like communicate, communicate, communicate. And I, I wrote an article recently on this, but my experience is with my friend the other day. We used to work together in an organization a fair few years ago and she's working in another organization. She's like, you know, when the communication email gets sent out weekly or whatever it does from yeah. the CISO or whoever, she's like, I have to just roll my eyes because she goes, it feels yeah. so disingenuous. It just feels like, yeah, they're doing tick in the box, done communications. And, and I think that's a really clear thing to talk about here that, yes, tick in the box, I've sent an email out, but it doesn't mean necessarily the way you've gone about it is the right way to engage people. I know myself, it, emails would come out from old mate at the top. And I, I honestly just set up a rule that I would just, just auto archive because I was like, you know what? Like, this is so disingenuous. This guy doesn't necessarily really care. And I just felt that what's the point in sending an email because a, I'm not reading it and everyone around me probably was likely not to read it anyway. But then it just felt like they were doing it because they needed to do it because they had some internal comms person maybe doing it or there was, there was still this element that it just wasn't human. It wasn't really them. And that's what really turned me off. Yeah. Uh, That's, that's not communication. Um, I like to do, and I I think it it plays a big role in like user awareness and stuff. Like if you're just telling them stuff by an email, it's just not going to stick. I think we talked about that case on our last podcast where I just physically went and helped someone who was struggling because they they wouldn't allow him to have a hearing aid. And I signed out and just the fact that people actually saw me helping that person, like our GDPR and uh, clean desk incidents dropped more than 30% in the following month in that call center situation. It has to be real. It has to be genuine. They have to see you actually doing stuff and engaging stuff and caring. That makes it personal. Otherwise, it's just stuff you're shooting. And it's 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 actually counterproductive because Agreed. it feels disingenuous and you just roll your eyes at it. Yes, I've definitely done that multiple times. And I think... I mean, that's, I guess, one of the areas that we're trying to close in what I do personally, what, what my company does, but also is this this lack of humanized approach that we're talking to humans, that these people have dogs and kids and <laughs> they go, I know you have a dog, it's really cute, um, and they go to the beach on the week. These people are humans, and, and I feel that there's that disconnect, and when they're communicating that they think, oh, I've done it, tick and box, done, move on, go back to strategizing and talking to three people. But it's it's not going to penetrate these people's minds because they feel that they're not cared about because the way in which the email's written or the guy on the floor doesn't say hello to anyone or just doesn't want to have anything to do with anyone. And I think it's really it's a it's a holistic approach to this to the communication thing as well, because it's not just how the email's written, but it's also how you're leading people. Because my opinion is when you're leading people, you work for your people. They don't they don't work for you. Exactly. Like you need to be rolling up your sleeves, getting on the ground and helping them in the trenches because that to me is true leadership because if you're not prepared to do that, then then you shouldn't have the luxury of sitting in your office and, and, and drinking yep. a tea all day or whatever. And it, it's something you do kind of very passively all the time. So it doesn't even like, you don't have to set aside time for comms. I mean, when we have like an incident either internally or elsewhere that, you know what, this would be a really good learning experience because it actually touches on something that they'll do, you know, do as part of their work or part of their personal lives. Then that's a good opportunity to send some comms out for like some user awareness. But I don't, I feel like that the weekly or monthly email about, oh, be aware of blah, blah, blah that's not even going to register. Uh, and I read a really interesting article about, about a year ago that you, know, you can train the crap out of people. Uh, but if they see an email and it's, you know, it says they've won, you know, something reasonable, say 5,000 pounds or something. And there's like, they know that it's probably a scam, but mm-hmm. psychologically 
there is a psychological reward associated to it thinking, you know what, I, I actually deserve this. I want this to be true. And that's, that's rewarding to them on a psychological level. And unless you create an actual human relationship with that person where, Hey, security guy, let's call him Bob. And then, Hey, Bob cares about me. So I know Bob wants me to be careful about these things. So by me not clicking on this, I'm actually doing something for Bob. So I'm doing, I'm caring about someone that cares about me and that's psychologically rewarding. Like it offsets that temptation of, yeah, I don't care if you know, I had all this factual text training, but the fact that I'm actually doing it for someone that cares about me, as ridiculous as that sounds, psychologically, that's quite powerful. So I think it's really important to get people involved like on a human level. And, and that's when you see like really positive work cultures. It's when everyone gets along, everyone wants to get the job done. Everyone supports each other. Those are the great, you know, security or not, those are the great companies or the great teams you want to work for where everyone's friends and, and helps each other out. And you create that really positive culture and it works really well for security as well. But unfortunately it's been this tick box, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. Gestapo approach, very forceful. It just turns people off. Mm. And as humans, we're tribal. We, we want to feel in a community. No one wants to be isolated or ostracized. No one, no one wants that. Yeah. But so, exactly. I've had people quite worriedly bring things to me, and I'm like, "Thank you so much for bringing this. We'll fix that." It's like, like yeah, I'm really sorry. I mean, it's like, don't don't worry about it. You, I mean, you, you've obviously you've done it. You've already learned from it. You feel sorry for it. I mean, you've learned your lesson. I'm not going to chastise you about it. No, we're all fix the problem, and you know. The effort I have to put in to fix the problem that it causes is probably inferior to the effort it would have caused me to train that user up anyway. So I don't even see it as a loss. So, you know, you just, just all learn together, grow together. Cheesy, cheesy stuff. And thrive together. That was the last bit of the cheesiness. So right. let's... Let's finish our interview. Now, I have to say, I really love your weekly updates because they're real, they're raw, and they're honest. And you, you describe on each week, like how your role's going and things that you're doing within your organization. And one of the things that I know you touched on just before is you recently posted about how you hired a 21-year-old and that he's awesome. Can you expand a bit more about how hiring the younger generation is actually an asset and not something that should be frowned upon? And there's a few reasons why I ask this, like even myself, I was probably around this age uh, when I originally got into security and uh, there was a little bit of that going on initially. So it's a bit different now, but I have empathy uh, when I read that as someone having kind of the same approach when I started myself and someone kind of like yourself saw value in me and that's how I originally got into it. And the second part of the question is what I mean by this is traditional job ads are always saying 10 plus years of experience, mm -hmm. but that's really hard to find. So what can people do to adopt from your approach by hiring younger people? I think people are really missing the point when there's this aversion to hiring young people. And I actually got into a debate about this on, uh, not necessarily young people, because I'm hiring someone who's 42, but he's just starting out uh, this week as well. Again, like little to no security uh, knowledge whatsoever. Um, I got into this debate on LinkedIn last night where people were like, people are like flat out calling me out saying it's irresponsible what I'm doing. Uh, really, I must have missed this. I better go and do this after this. Uh, I better get my updates because I must have missed this. Yeah, really quite aggressive. It's like, no, no, because you need, you need people with knowledge and experience. And I'm like, where do you think this knowledge and experience comes from? Do you think Out they of go, pot plants. They, they, do they go on like a vision quest in the forest and they, they, their spirit animal with this security knowledge magically appears after wandering the woods for 10 years? No, someone taught it to them 
why are you so averse to being that someone? I don't understand that. And you know, everyone is, is trying to find a security unicorn with this specific skill set for exactly every single tool they happen to be using in that, in that organization. And that's impossible to find. You know what? It's not actually. If you hire a blank canvas and teach him those things, boom, you've got a unicorn. So I, but why I, are people averse to this though? Like really, what? Like people, people are not people who have got ten plus years of experience. They're not getting any younger, and they're going to get older. So there's no, we can't really keep fishing from the same pond. Like we're going to have to just go. Well, we've got younger people coming through the ranks. We kind of got no choice now. And someone, someone has to grow the younger people anyway. And. You know, and, and I get I get crap earlier. Well, what about like retention and stuff? I'm like, what what about retention? I fully expect them to leave after two or three years. I've already told them this. They know this, but they also know that in two to three years, they're going to have 15 years worth of experience. They're going to be worth two to three times what I'm paying them now. And they understand that that's why they're here. They're here because they're eager to learn and they're eager to work for someone who will actually give them real work. So I throw them in at the deep end of the pool. And I'm there, you know, my desk is 10 feet away. If you need something, let me know. And that's, and they're eager to do it. And I like, I struggle to rein them back. You know, I, I struggle to find the time to give them enough things to do because that's how eager they are to do stuff. Whereas, mm. you know, I, I give them work for what I think is going to keep them busy for two or three days. And by lunchtime, he's bugging me for more stuff to do. And I'm like, geez. Um, so why, why wouldn't you want that? And it's the analogy I gave yesterday is like, we've got a bunch of people sitting next to this big water fountain with a stack of thousands of plastic bottles, empty plastic bottles, complaining about how there's no bottled water. It's like, put the water in the bottle. It's that <laughs> oh, easy. But no one wants to do it. I but never- why? I don't get it. Why don't you want to be able to train younger people so we have people from a different skill set? Like, why do you want all the people who've got the same way of thinking anyway? Because Exactly. Because I spend, because of, you know, we're talking about doing security differently, but the status quo is something else, which means 99% of the people out there are geared to do something very differently. And because when they started out, the, the tone of work and productivity and level that was set for them is, here, do these spreadsheets it's very low and all that potential and eagerness that they had has been killed off. And it's very difficult to reawaken that. And it's very difficult to deprogram all that indoctrination that they have to get them to look at at things the way I do. Whereas if I get like a junior resource or someone who's just starting out, I can show them this is how we do things there. And they're not influenced by all this other garbage in the background that they've been doing for the last 10 years (laughs) under terrible bosses and terrible managers. So Mm. you can, you can get them to a level like within six months that is superior to what most people are, you know, with six years of experience are doing out there. I mean, I'm sorry. There's some really good people out there. And, and, there's, and it's not even those people's fault that they're not as productive as they could be because they just never had anyone push them. Um, and it, it, that blank canvas, I mean, they're so eager. They're so productive. You can mold them to do exactly what they want because they are so happy to learn any skill whatsoever. I mean, Ryan, 21, in charge of our entire 365 estate, he had no knowledge of 365 whatsoever. Google is your friend. Three days later, he's pulling up functions that I didn't even know existed. So what's, what's the problem? Like I couldn't even have dictated to him the job he's doing because he's already uncovered like functionalities in our infrastructure, our cloud stuff that I didn't even know we had because he's just been out there sniffing and, and wanting to leverage every piece of it. So if I was the one actually, it's giving them that freedom to actually roam and run around, 
they actually end up discovering stuff that you didn't know about. So if you rigidly structured the work for them, you would never even have gotten to it. So that's another huge bonus. But what I don't get is, is, you know, I talked about this before about people being complacent. That's one thing, but they keep talking to get new people in. Why the hell would someone want to work in this industry when everyone's basically saying you're a junior, you know, nothing, I'm not going to invest in you. How does that actually entice people in? Because that would deter me. And then they complain about it and they complain there's enough women in it when women feel completely that they're undermined because they're not a man. So it's kind of like we're doing a disservice to everyone because then no one's willing to help anyone. And everyone's just like, Oh no, nah, that guy's way too junior. It's uh, what was it? Unreliable. Was that what you were saying before? Someone said that to you online? Uh, maybe. <clears throat> I don't know. Um, but yeah, I just, I just don't get it. I, I don't get it. It's worth, yeah, you have to put some time. Because I think everyone just wants, like, again, box ticking. I have a static role. I've hired a static person to fill that role. And that's it. And it's just security doesn't work like that. It's extremely dynamic. Organizations are dynamic. Requirements are dynamic. You need aptitude. You need people that are flexible, available, uh, you know, e- eager to learn anything you throw at them. Like, it's like, you know what? Today you're going to do instant response. You know what? Tomorrow you're planning or vulnerability scanning infrastructure. Uh, I, I don't know how that works. Here's a book on networking. Have fun. And it just gets done because they're eager to do it. And you're paying them 40% of what you pay a normal person. I'm like, I'm staffing three positions on this, on the budget that was originally meant for one in a bit. So, so it's time and it's, it's hiring the right people with the right mindset. I mean, I'm, and- I'm being proactive. First of all, I'm using fewer people. And then I'm using junior people that have less than half the salary requirements of more senior people. And they're actually twice as productive as those people because they're not shackled by the indoctrination stuff. And they're just so eager, partly because no one else will give them a chance, which they're just, they're just hurting them towards me and doing me a favor, to be honest. So thank you for not hiring these people. I'll have them all. Thank you very much. At least I wish I could, but unfortunately we're, we've got a very proactive approach and I only need so many people. That's my only regret. Well, I mean, people keep messaging me online going, I can't get a job, keep getting denied. And, and I mean, everyone gets into it a different way. Like I just, I just spoke to the right people and I asked the right questions that they were like, wow, this person's curious and you're eager and you're keen. And that's how I learned. That's how I did different things. And as soon as I got bored, I got something else, which upset some people, but that's fine. Yeah. But I think what really concerns me is just people that are wanting to get into it and old mate saying, well, no, you don't have any experience. I can't hire you. But then, but then everyone's complaining that we can't hire people. We've got to get people in. Maybe everyone should actually take a step back and think if we, if we actually take people who've got no experience and we train them, they'll be loyal to us and then they'll grow in our industry. You just hit on a few things. First of all, the being bored thing, that's, that's precisely how I found Ryan because a, a recruiter sent me his resume for free because it's like, there's no way I can place this person. No one will have this person. Maybe you can have a look at it. And it was literally like two months out of help desk and grades and his grades were crap, but they were consistently crap, which to me was like, this is someone who's really, really bored, who knows exactly what the bare minimum is. And that's all he's doing. And sure enough, super bright, productive, bit of a, you know, he needs some reeling in in some areas and he'll mature. He's a kid. He's 21 years old. And funny enough, the baby face actually gets him a lot of help from other people that would normally ignore others. So that's <laughs> another, another benefit. Another plus. Yeah. So, and the other thing is no two environments are the same. Every single company you go into works differently, have different systems, have different tools, have different processes. You have to learn all that stuff anyway. So what's the freaking difference? Well, I used to get in trouble because I used to get bored and they're like, the HR people would come down and have a chat with me and say, you need to stay in this role two years before you can move on. And I'm like, 
I managed to socially engineer my way out into another role to the point where other people had found out that I'd moved roles and started getting upset about it. But I was bored. I had absorbed the information. I wanted more stuff to do. I think that that should be encouraged and not necessarily frowned upon. And I, I like doing stuff. And wouldn't you rather have someone that actually enjoys what they do and wants to learn versus someone that actually just sits there and and watches Facebook videos on their phone for like an hour and a half and then goes to the gym for three hours and then has a coffee with Jane and Daniel. And then they go home. I I, I think that it's a mentality thing. Yeah. Like the other thing you touched on is the, the retention. And I get a lot of flack for it because everyone's obsessed about retention because there's so few people out there. It's like, shit, there's, I've got a queue of resumes of bright young people just waiting for an opening. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't have more roles for you guys. Um, and and you know why that is? I can tell you why. It's because you're leading the way in which they want to be led. Yeah, I, and I get that a lot. Like I've, this, this other 42-year-old starter is like, I just feel like I could pick so much stuff out of your brain and you'd actually let me. Like most bosses would just put me in a corner and have me do some task. Um, and the retention thing is like, I, I know that they're going to be gone in two to three years. I will push them out in two to three years if I can't find them because they'll simply have outgrown this organization. Um, and people think that's ludicrous. Oh, there's not enough people. Like, that's bull. There's plenty of people. You just don't want to train them yourselves. And, you know, you're looking for these unicorns out there. So well, I've got a unicorn farm here. I'll grow you some unicorns. And in three years, you can have them. But you're going to be paying them three times what I pay them now. Now, they're... I, this argument, well, we pay ours very, very well. That's why we've got great retention, this and that. It's like, well, okay, but I can go to my chief executive and say, by the way, I'm saving you 70% on salaries because I'm putting in the effort to mentor them, which I find personally rewarding. And we're actually getting really, really good uh, work output that's superior to what we'd be getting if we were paying them three times the salary. Yeah. So win, win, win. Or do you think she'd prefer hearing, by the way, we're overpaying the hell out of our people so they don't leave? Like why are they, why do we need to pay them so much money so they don't leave? Why are they so unhappy working here? But that, that's a bigger problem anyway. Like people aren't loyalists to company. I read a book. I think it's like Manager 3.0. It explains about like people don't stay in jobs for 20 years anymore. It's not going to happen. So whether you try to do retention to the end of the earth, it's still not going to happen because this is the reality that millennials, Gen Zs that are coming through the ranks now, that's not how they want to Plus, plus money, money is like number four or five or six on the list of, you know, the top 10 things that actually create retention. I mean, for my role, uh, in terms of market rates, I'm probably underpaid. I don't, you know, I don't think I'm underpaid because I just, my approach is, it's very relaxed. So if you know, I enjoy my job, I get decent money for it. That's fine. Uh, most people probably make 25 grand more than I do, uh, in this position. If you came here and, and offered me a different job for 25,000 pounds a year more, I wouldn't take it. I'd rather stay here because I like it here. So money is not the end all be all to retention. No, it's not. Don't tell and me I think I want to ask for a raise next year. But. <laughs> okay. We'll edit that part out. But uh, there, there was a study done like millennials in particular, they, they feel driven by purpose yeah. and they're not driven by money. And exactly. maybe people are getting it all wrong. So people need to take a step back and look outside of our industry and what are other people in other industries doing. And I can tell you that it's not necessarily money at the end of the day and it's purpose and it's the vision that they're contributing to. And what does that actually look like? But Greg, we're going to have to wrap it up. We've been talking for a while. I've absolutely enjoyed it. I've loved it. I think it was really honest and really real. And I've had an awesome time chatting to you. 
Likewise, I'm really glad that we got, heck, you might even be able to split in two. I'm really glad that we got to talk so much about the recruitment side because that's something that it's just been overwhelming lately. It's everywhere and it just really rubs me the wrong way. Like just grow your people. That's that's all I got to say. It's and cool. one thing that I, I agree with you, and one thing that I just want to end with that I was given a shot by a senior person and, I, and I'm doing what I'm doing now. And I think that Perhaps if you give someone a chance that they will work for you and they might be someone that's an absolute unicorn in this industry. And I think that people shouldn't just be just flicking them, just saying like, oh, well, no, you have no experience. And it's it's just something that I have a lot of empathy for and I hope that people can overlook it. And I was just so grateful that I got given a chance and opportunity because I absolutely love the industry and it's something that I'm going to stay in for a very, very long time. Huge benefit is it, it only takes a year or two to mentor someone in this way. They then adopt that thinking. First of all, they grow so they will progress through the ranks much faster than most. And they bring with them that thinking that welcomes the newcomers as well. You create people that will then create these opportunities for other people. And lastly, Greg, before we do jump off, people do want to get in touch with you. Where can they get in touch with you? People that are not software vendors can get in touch with me on LinkedIn quite readily. I'll happily accept any connection requests. Okay, awesome. Thanks so much for that. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.